Ahoy, authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 132 of the Writership Podcast. Today, I'm talking about inciting incidents. If you want to learn more about the podcast, read the show notes, and grab this week's editorial mission, visit writership.com slash podcast. This podcast is designed to help you develop self-editing skills and write a better story. In each episode, I critique a fiction submission, sometimes with the help of a guest editor. Our submissions come from real writers who are, or hope to be, published authors. They understand they may need help seeing what's working and not in their stories and are brave enough to share the experience. I offer an editorial mission to help you apply the topic discussed in the episode so you can improve your writing too. It's been a while since I've had an episode up again, uh, but things are starting to settle even more. I had a little travel over the summer, a house full of people, and also fell ill with a dreaded illness. But uh, things are starting to fall into place again, and so I'm hoping to be able to bring you episodes more regularly. I'll give you some updates on some of the fun things I've done and insightful things um, over the summer. But for now, I want to dive into this episode because there's a lot to talk about. A couple of announcements before I dive into the substance of the episode. One is a reminder that the submission guidelines have changed. So now you can submit an excerpt from your work or your entire story, if it's a short one, um, for of up to 2,000 words or thereabouts. Um, if you're thinking about getting some feedback on how you can make your story stronger, take the plunge. Submit your scene or short story at writership.com slash submissions. And I wanted to give you a special reminder about Patreon rewards. We added new rewards this summer for Patreon subscribers. Cabin crew members receive a shout out on the podcast and are featured on our supporters page. They also receive an invitation to the Writership Podcast Slack community where we can keep the discussions about the episodes going. Shipmates receive all the cabin crew rewards, but also get an invitation to our monthly Q&A call. Each month, I'll host a call to answer your burning questions about writing and storytelling. The quartermasters receive all the shipmate rewards, but they also have an invitation to the monthly deep scene dive. So each month, one of our members will submit a scene, which I'll critique and send back to them just like I do on the podcast, then they'll have an opportunity to make changes and resubmit, and then we discuss it in the group call. The discussions that have come out of these calls have been rich. We're spending time getting to the bottom of how to write and revise stories that we can really be proud of. So if you want to find out more, visit patreon.com slash writership. So we're talking about inciting incidents this week, and I have a quote from Robert McKee. When an inciting incident occurs, it must be a dynamic, 
fully developed event, not something static or vague. This, for example, is not an inciting incident. A college dropout lives off campus near New York University. She wakes one morning and says, I'm bored with my life. I think I'll move to Los Angeles. She packs up her VW at Voters West, but her change of address changes nothing of value in her life. She's merely exporting her apathy from New York to California. If, on the other hand, we notice that she's created an ingenious kitchen wallpaper from hundreds of parking tickets, then a sudden pounding on the door brings the police, brandishing a felony warrant for $10,000 in unpaid citations, and she flees down the fire escape heading west. This could be an inciting incident. It has done what an inciting incident must do. Okay, so again, that's from Robert McKee uh, and his book called Story, and there'll be a link for that in the show notes. Now, we covered inciting incidents in episode 114 with the, with a, the opening scene from Sheila Lishway's psychological thriller. But here we're going to go a little deeper into what these elements are supposed to do for your stories and scenes. And to help us do that, we have an excellent submission. Our submission today is Nicholas Crumb by Drew Horstman. It's an unpublished, at the time of recording, fantasy novel with a target word count of 80,000. This is an excerpt from the first chapter. Dreary Old Drubbin, 1880. March had only just begun. The scribbage home for deserted delinquents, fatherless foundlings, and motherless scabs stood atop a hill protruding like a boil on the face of the city of Drubbin. Corporal Goldhawk reached the inspector waiting for her at the gate as the hazy light of the half-moon spilled out from behind a cloud, revealing a shadowy necropolis of crumbling statues dotting the hillside rising behind him. The night fog sunk in lazy, heavy swirls. Goldhawk looked past the man and eyed the ugly, ramshackle mansion with a weary disinterest. It hardly seemed worth saving. Bit of a spook house, eh, Captain? the inspector said. Gray temples showed under his peaked cap. Don't let the little things gnaw at you, she thought as she closed her eyes slowly and opened them again. It's corporal, she corrected him. And if architecture frightens you, I suggest you find another profession. It's not the house that frightens me. It's whatever the hell's inside. He put out a hand. Inspector Mortimum. She offered hers. He couldn't look her in the face. They never did at least not when they knew they were being watched. Corporal Goldhawk, she returned. Where's my constable? He didn't seem to think he was needed any longer. Took off three blocks back. The inspector spat on the dirt. Coward. 
The two climbed the path that cut a straight scar up the hill, the inspector wheezing a half-step behind Goldhawk. Gravel crunched beneath her boots. From the sound of it, it was being pulverized beneath his. A little heavy and appearing older than he probably was, the inspector was, was slow in more ways than Goldhawk could count. Drubbin's general police force was saddled with these types. Fat, stupid slouches pricked with a silver badge, rosy-cheeked and watery-eyed, good-natured, simple men. Maybe a bit harsh. She knew better than to judge. But they formed the doughy foundation upon which her kind, the hard and determined ones, must stand in order to reach the next level. It was a struggle, but she would not be held back. She would not sink and suffocate among the blobs. Goldhawk belonged to the Magical Enforcement Agency, which dealt with criminal wizards under the sovereignty's jurisdiction. She was called in for special cases such as this. It took her three years to earn the title of corporal, and three years had disappeared since. Being a woman didn't help. Neither did the fact that her entire scalp and one quarter of her face around her left eye was fashioned of silver metal. Gold wings emblazoned the sides of her, the permanent helmet. It formed a beautiful piece of armor, one that shimmered under the moonlight and would look fine on a mantle. Not so attached to one's head. Her appearance made people mistrust her. The armor worked well to protect her against magic, but not against judgment from others. And though it helped in her line of work, the helmet had not earned her rank for her. That came through hard work. Waiting for them just off the porch were a sergeant, a score of children huddled together in a shivering mass, and a tall woman. The woman stepped away from the group and planted herself before Corporal Goldhawk, like a barbican, defending a castle entry. She clutched a scanty fur coat tight to her shoulders with gloved hands, the gloves slightly too loose at the elbows. Her hair was pulled up in a bun, her face as stony as any of the statues on the lawn. Cheap jewelry dangled from her ears. Madam Scribbage, said Mortibum, this is Corporal Goldhawk with magical enforcement. I will not allow a wizard in my home, Inspector, Madam Scribbage said in a haughty tone she probably mistook as sounding dignified. It seems you already have, said Goldhawk, taking a step to move around the towering woman. Madam Scribbage matched Goldhawk, again barring her passage. I was referring to you, she said. A large woman who dealt with children all day, she certainly would expect her size to win her battles. But Goldhawk never let someone or something bigger than her stand in her way, and she wouldn't be standing where she was if she ever did. I assure you, madam, I possess no more magical ability than yourself. 
What I do possess is extensive knowledge of magic, a great deal of experience dealing with magic criminals, and, most importantly, a gun. Goldhawk pulled back one half of her leather vest and revealed the polished ivory handle of a pistol. Step aside. This will only take a moment. Madame Scribbage offered little more than an impotent huff and inched aside, glaring as Goldhawk passed. Be quick about it, she said. The children are getting cold. As Goldhawk ascended the steps to the house, she cast a look at the ragtag group cowering in thin pajamas and nightgowns, and then her gaze traveled back to Madame Scribbage, bundled in her coat. She bit her tongue, and she and Inspector Mortimum entered the house. The roaring howls, scrapings, scratchings, and all other trappings of a monstrous beast echoed overhead and down throughout the house. Corporal Goldhawk moved quickly, fearlessly, bounding up four flights of winding stairs. Mortimum lagged behind a full step at first, and soon a full flight of stairs separated the two. He seemed to be struggling against a tether, tugging him back to the front door. "'Are you sure two of us will be enough?' he shouted from one landing. His voice wavered as the monster unleashed a growl which threatened to drown out all sounds. "'I could go back and get the sergeant.' Two is fine. Hurry up.' Goldhawk waited at the topmost landing. When Mortimum, wheezing, reached her, she took them down a narrow hall and into a room that appeared to have fallen out of use many years ago. Its outer wall cut in at a hard angle and was lined with dormer windows. What little light of the pale blue moon slipped through the ghostly fog outside provided the room its only light. The sound of the monster was deafening. A wall panel to the right shook loudly and threatened to break. I think we found the problem, Inspector. Our monster is trapped behind that wall. A secret room, perhaps. She paced to the side of the room opposite the hidden door, planted her feet at shoulder width, and withdrew her pistol. It shimmered in the cold lunar light as she lifted it and pointed the barrel at the center of the door. You take the door, Inspector. I'll make the shot. Inspector Mortimum did not budge an inch. His rear end still hung out into the hallway. Take the door, Corporal? But where shall I bring it? Not a good time for humor, said Goldhawk. It appears the panel slides open. Do it as quick as you can and step aside. It's an easy task. Come now before the monster does the job for you. All the better if it does, Mortimer whimpered. The monster battered the door with ever-increasing intensity, making the thing bulge and convulse with violence. It heard voices. Likely it wished to put a face to them. Hurry, Inspector. 
You're telling me to let the monster out and then stand between it and your bullet? I'm sure you can understand why I hesitate. She could not understand at all, but she also had no time to argue. The angrier the monster grew, the worse for them when it burst out. Do you carry a gun? Goldhawk asked. She had not moved, with her gun and eyes steady on the trembling wall. Mortimum answered in the affirmative. Stand there. I'll open the door. You fire the moment you see the monster. Be sure you don't miss. You get one shot. The suggestion inspired a sallow color to wash over Mortimum's face. Still, his legs churned and he stumbled into position. Goldhawk crossed the room and placed a hand on the wall. Mortimum aimed his gun. On my count, said Goldhawk. Three, two, wait, Mortimum cried. He let the pistol drop to his side and patted his pockets with his empty hand. Almost forgot to load it. Just a moment. Now, where have I put the little buggers? But a moment was all it took. The hidden door ruptured and exploded away from the wall, and the monster emerged. Hunched with burly shoulders and heavy arms, it was covered in shaggy black fur. Bulky horns, like those of a ram, pressed to the ceiling. It unleashed a roar that rattled the windows in the room. The beast charged Mortimum, who fell and shielded himself. Goldhawk ran, covering the length of the room between her and the inspector in five long strides. She turned and fired a single shot. It ripped straight through the chest of the pursuing beast. Before the crack of the shot ceased to ring in Goldhawk's ears, or the smell of burning sulfur reached her nose, the monster dissipated as a cloud of black smoke. Next time, do as you're told, she said, hoisting Mortimum to his feet. Yes, Captain. Goldhawk didn't correct him. She was too busy wafting away the hazy cloud where the monster had just been, making her way to the little room that had trapped it. It was hardly a room, more like a large closet, the walls lined with books. Hanging in one corner, a lantern still burned, warming the room with a soft orange glow. It's a secret place for practicing mag magic, Goldhawk said, soaking in every last detail. Practicing right under the nose of that Madame Scribbage without her knowing. Is there a body? Mortimum asked, hovering outside the opening in the wall. No body, Goldhawk said. She stooped to pick up a book lying open on the floor. Whoever created the monster was frightened by it, probably as much as you were. Why should they have been? They created the damned thing. Indeed they did, and then they ran away. Or they were eaten whole. That monster was a physical form of emotion. Anger, if I had to guess. I'll second that. 
Mortimum curled his head around the splintered opening and dared a peek inside. Goldhawk examined the book in her hand. It reminded her of a penny dreadful, cheap, flimsy, illustrated, but the title was too faded to make out. She fanned through the pages as she spoke to Mortimum behind her. A child's anger, big, loud, scary, yet it evaporated with a single bullet because it had not yet hardened. Emotions need more time before they can devour their host, even when those emotions take physical form, even when those forms are magic. I say, what's this? A bit of child's writing on the inside cover. A poem. Fancy poetry, do you? As it pertains to my job. Goldhawk read the inscription aloud. Revolution like the tide comes slow, yet comes it by and by. March, children, when tide is low, and strike when tide is high. Strange what children think up these days, Mortimum mumbled. Goldhawk looked back at Mortimum and tossed him the book. He fumbled and nearly dropped the thing, but having secured it, held it away from his body, which filled the expanse of the blown open wall quite comfortably. Few things in this world I'd rather not stick my nose in than a book of dark magic. Thank you very much. I didn't ask you to read it, though it wouldn't hurt for you to brush up a bit if you wish to identify monsters when you see them. That's evidence, Inspector. Hold tight. Goldhawk turned again to face the small library. Only a few moments passed, and already she heard from behind her the slow scrape of turning pages. Why close the door behind you, she wondered. Why lock the monster in? Okay, the author gave us a little bit of information so that we know how this episode ends. And here it is. So Goldhawk deduces the wizard who created the monster was a child, Nicholas Crumb. She decides not to pursue Nicholas because it was clearly a mistake, and fear of the monster he created was punishment enough. Mortimum, however, disagrees, calls Nicholas a criminal, and shows bias against wizards. He demands that Goldhawk pursue Nicholas, threatening to report her if she does not. Goldhawk is forced to choose between jeopardizing young Nicholas's life and her own career. She decides to go after Nicholas and keep her goal of achieving a higher rank intact. I really enjoyed this submission, and it's it's like a lot of the submissions that we get here on the podcast where I read them through because I have to read them several times to kind of come up with, okay, what would my best advice for the next steps for this writer be? And the when I read through a lot of the submissions the first time, I'm reading it really as a reader and noticing just how am I experiencing the submission. And as I said, like many, this one, I read through it and I don't notice a lot of 
problems right away, right? There's some minor things that I pick up on, but overall, the feeling when I get to the end of it is, am I interested in finding out what happens after this? And the answer is yes. So I think that's really wonderful. I think it speaks to the, you know, the quality of the submissions that we do get and also the work that writers put into their stories. And so I think that's really wonderful that we get to look at these submissions where writers have put in a lot of time and that we can learn something from them still. Thanks so much, Drew, for sharing this with us. We've got really interesting characters. It's easy to sympathize with Goldhawk's frustration. She wants to do her job, but she has to deal with these annoying people like Mortimum, right? Career guys who are just kind of hanging out, not really doing the work. And Scribbage, a member of the public, right, who's pretty annoying in her own right. And they get in the way, even though they enjoy the fruits of her labors. So it's a great setup. Now, one thing I want to mention that's not related to inciting incidents, but it's really good. Uh, it's a really nice tactic that, that the author used in this story. And that's the relationship between Mortimum and Goldhawk, because it's a great device to allow you to share backstory through conflict. So he's a bit of a bumbling fool. So Goldhawk can lecture him on certain topics that let us get to know things about the world and how they work. Um, For example, Goldhawk explains about the nature of the, the monster, and it doesn't feel like an info dump because there's conflict. He's He's bumbling around, and she needs to explain things to him. So it's a really nice tactic. We also get a little bit when Goldhawk is talking to Madame Scribbage, and she explains the nature of her and her job and what she that she's not a magical being herself, but she knows a lot, and she's got experience and a gun, so she can handle the situation. So I did a full scene analysis, which you'll be able to find in the show notes. But to save some time, I'll use a quick check to see if the scene is working. This involves the basic elements that make up up a scene. Change, conflict, and action. So for change, we're looking at does does something change from the beginning of the scene to the end of the scene? Well, we begin the scene with a monster occupying the house. And at the end, the monster's gone. So that's a pretty significant change. Now, is there conflict? Are there things getting in the way of getting that monster out of the house? Well, Inspector Mortimum and his bumbling ways are a problem. Especially when when the rubber really hits the road and they have to take care of the monster. Madam Scribbage also represents conflict or an an agent of conflict in the scene because she, you know, at first she doesn't even want to let Goldhawk, the only competent person on the scene, go into the house. And of course, the monster provides obstacles to her goal of ridding the the house of itself. So we have lots of lots of agents of conflict that are working against Goldhawk. Now, 
action. Does the point of view character take action in the scene? In, you know, not only in pursuit of the goal, but when you get to a turning point, do they make that make things happen? And yes, Goldhawk in this scene shoots the monster and solves the problem. So the focus is on inciting incidents. And so we want to ask ourselves in this scene, what is the inciting incident? And before we dive into that answer, I want to take a couple of steps back and talk about what an inciting incident is, why we need them, what are their elements, all of that. We just want to break this down so we can really understand it. Okay, an inciting incident is a story event that changes some aspect of life for the protagonist or point of view character. You might also say this is something that upsets the status quo or the ordinary world of the story. This event is a major turning point, though it's different from the turning point that we talk about in the context of story or scene conflict or progressive complications. The inciting incident is the catalyst for everything that follows within the scene or any other unit of story. Because remember that story structure is like, uh, Sean Coyne talks about it as nested dolls. You can think of it as fractals. But basically the five commandments of storytelling, that basic story structure ap should appear at every level of story. So across the entire story, within your acts and subplots, within sequences of scenes, within, and within your scenes. Okay, so to get a clear sense of how this works in context, consider basic story structure that's shared by former Pixar artist Emma Coates. Once upon a time, there was blank. Every day, blank. One day, blank. Because of that, blank. Because of that, blank. Until finally, blank. Okay, there are a lot of blanks in there, but within this fill-in-the-blank story, the sentences that begin once upon a time and every day describe the status quo or the character's ordinary world. The protagonist is living her life minding her own business, and then one day, that's the inciting incident. That's when life begins to change. Now, you can also think of this as the call to adventure in the hero's journey. That might be something you're more familiar with. Now, why do we need an inciting incident? It's really, I think, understanding this really helps us to not only identify inciting incidents in our own stories and other stories so we can study them, but it also helps us understand how to craft them. Stories are about change, as I've said a lot, and individuals and societies and groups don't embrace change. We resist it, even when it's for the better. So we need a shock to the system, an enticing call to adventure, or some other drastic event to give us a nudge out the door. Inciting incidents now are, they're specific to your genre. So for your story, 
the inciting incident that kicks it off should be related to your genre. Now, I have a list of genre-specific inciting incidents with examples from books and films in the show notes, so you'll be able to look those up and identify a model for your the genre that you want to write in. Okay, so that's why we need inciting incidents. Let's look at the elements of them. The first thing that happens is is or the first element, I should say, is that the inciting incident is an event that upsets the status quo. It has to be significant. If the protagonist only shrugs her shoulders in response, the story or the scene isn't going anywhere. So the event must be big enough to cause the character to react. And this is whether we're talking about the story or a scene. Anything and and all the units of story in between, but but the point is an inciting incident has to be significant. Okay, this upset, you know, when this happens, a desire arises within the character, and that can be anything from a desire to restore the status quo or something much bigger. So. Then the third, ki- the third element or the third aspect of this is that the desire becomes a goal. Now, the goal can be an attitude or belief. It can be the acquisition of some object or it can be to change one's circumstances. There's a lot of, obviously, you can think, you can probably think of dozens of story goals or even scene goals that, that fit this. Um, So there's a lot to choose from. But basically, it has to be something attainable or achievable. Okay, and then, of course, the character begins to act in pursuit of that goal. Now, which is really part of the next phase beyond inciting incidents, but I wanted to kind of round that out. Now, these elements won't always be explicit or spelled out in your scene. In fact, doing so can sometimes create awkward and clunky writing. So as a writer, you should have a clear idea of what those elements are. You know, when you're going, when you're revising your scenes, you need to know. And they should be apparent to the reader if they were to give it some thought. But it doesn't always have to be, strictly speaking, on the page, explicitly written out. Okay, so those are the elements. Now, what are the qualities of an inciting incident? Inciting incidents can be positive or negative. So a character receives a financial windfall or a teacher encourages his students to seize the day. A man might be shot and killed in the middle of town, or an enemy ship might fire on a frigate. In addition to being positive or negative, inciting incidents can be causal, that is an active choice, coincidental, or ambiguous. So here's an example of or a couple of examples of active choices, so causal inciting incidents. A character sets out on a journey, or a character decides to leave their spouse. They're doing this purposefully. 
Okay, so for coincidental inciting incidents, a shark attacks swimmers or two men of great fortune move into the neighborhood. Now, a shark attacking swimmers in in the sense that sharks do have a sort of... Um, they have motivation for attacking the swimmers, but they're not, they don't, sharks don't do that because they want to kill the people. They're, they're hungry. So, or presumably, um, and you know, when, when I'm talking about two men of great fortune moving into a neighborhood, I'm referencing pride and prejudice there. And although, Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy move into the neighborhood intentionally. They're not moving into the neighborhood so that they can meet the five Bennett sisters. So that's what I mean by coincidental. Now, it can also be ambiguous. For example, if we think about Fight Club and the apartment explosion that kicks off the events of that story, we don't know whether it was some kind of accident or if it was something deliberately set up. Again, as the writer, you want to know that, but you can leave it ambiguous if it serves a story purpose. So let's return to the question I asked earlier, which is, what is the inciting incident for this submission? And this is when it's useful to start doing a story event analysis. So first we ask, what are the characters literally doing? Right, this is the literal action. What are they doing on the surface? Well, Goldhawk shoots a monster and keeps Mortimum and Scribbage from sabotaging her efforts. What is the essence of what the characters are doing is the second question, and that's getting at the essential action or the subtext or the character's scene goal. In this case, Goldhawk wants to eliminate the monster. The third question is, what life value has changed for one or more of the characters in the scene? Okay, this is when you want to look at all the different ways possible that something has changed from the beginning to the end of the scene. So we might say that the monster goes from life to death. We might say that Mortimum goes from scared to relieved. We could say that Goldhawk goes from confident to curious or questioning. Um, we could also say that the occupants go from threatened to safe. The fourth question is, which life value is most relevant to the global genre, the one that would go in the StoryGrid spreadsheet? And this, of course, depends on what the genre is. And I don't know that exactly. So I'm going to, I'll, and it's not necessary to the analysis that we're doing just now. I would need to talk with the author to find out exactly what the intention is, and then I could give them a recommendation. From this analysis, nonetheless, we know that the character's essential action or single is to eliminate that monster. But we don't actually see on the page when the desire to be successful in her assignment or something similar to that for Goldhawk and the goal to eliminate the monster arose. So that being the case, we want to 
take a look, take a closer look. So that goal to do away with the monster is either an inciting incident that's implied from the circumstances, or it was a pre-existing goal and part of the status quo. But I don't think it's the latter. That is, I don't think it's just a pre-existing goal that's part of her status quo, because her goal doesn't change from when we first meet her until the end of the excerpt. Now, my hunch is that after the monster is killed and there's a discussion about Nicholas Crumb and what to do about him, I think that's probably another scene. Again, I would need to talk with the author more to establish that. But there's also another alternative interpretation of the submission and that it could be that her goal to Goldhawk's goal, that is, is to investigate a disturbance. And then when she discovers it's a monster, she does away with it. But there isn't really an inciting incident when she's given that assignment or that goal either. So now what do we what do we do about this? Now, this isn't a terrible omission. Um, if it weren't the first scene in the story, I might let it slide. We can all tell from the context what the character's goal is. And that's really a big part of why we need an inciting incident. So we know what the character wants as they go through the, go through the scene. And so we can put up obstacles that are related to that goal, right? So it's all connected. But The thing is, this would be a really easy fix, a couple of sentences or a paragraph at the most. So really what we have is a very solid scene that basically works, because as you'll see in my full scene analysis, that progressive complications are related to the single and aligned and the as is the crisis question, um, which is The crisis question could also use a little um, beefing up, but but it's implied and we can kind of see it on the page. The climax is very, very clear and um, and the resolution is really lovely. We get some more information, more complications that will uh, serve to leave a reader curious about what happens next. So, again, it's a solid scene, but with these little tweaks could be even stronger. Okay, so let's shift to the editorial mission. And what I want you to do is gather inciting incidents. So as you read or watch stories, I want you to identify the event that kicks things off, that throws the character's life out of balance. Can you identify the four elements, which are you know, the status quo, the event that upsets the status quo, the desire that comes from it, and the goal that they that comes from the desire. How about whether it's positive or negative? Sometimes that might be ambiguous as well, but it's it's usually pretty clear. And then is it causal or coincidental or ambiguous? Now, I want you to start a list of inciting incidents in the stories and scenes you encounter. 
this will become a treasure trove of possibilities as you plan, draft, and revise the scenes in your stories. So you can gather what other people have done and say, okay, what would this be like in my story with my characters and adapt it to meet your needs? But just knowing what the possibilities are is deeply useful. And that's one of the reasons why I have examples of inciting incidents for the specific genres in the show notes. Okay, now... In the context of your own life, consider the inciting incidents that you've experienced. You can look at large events and small events. You can look at causal and coincidental and, of course, positive and negative. Now, think about how you felt when you were in the middle of those events. How did you react? What did you do? What were the desires that arose within you and... What were the goals that came that came from those desires? And I want you to keep a list of these personal inciting incidents. Then, as a regular exercise, I want you to write about them. Don't take a lot of your writing time. I do want you to keep moving on your work in progress, obviously. But, but as a regular exercise, write about them. Your reactions and emotions can inform what your characters think, say, and do in analogous, though different, circumstances. And see, this is what's really behind the advice to write what you know. So take your own experience that is similar in some way to what your characters are experiencing and then and use the feelings and emotions and, and motivations and write from there. As we wrap things up, I offer deep gratitude to Drew Horstman, the author of today's submission, and to our Patreon crew for supporting the podcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to show your support, visit patreon.com slash writership, where you can join our community, as well as the deep scene dive calls and Q&A calls. If you'd like to show your support in other ways, tell a writing friend about the podcast or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you'd like to have your scene critiqued on the podcast, visit writership.com submissions. That's it for episode 132. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. 